Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Redemption Life Church. Listen as Pastor Michael Cox teaches on putting off the old and putting on the new. We'll just jump right in real quick. I was, uh, time is running out on my vehicle situation. My son is turned 16 in two months, March 17th. And uh, so he has invested in my truck, and we've got it, trying to get it finished up for him. And so this week, I spent a little bit of time looking at vehicles, and that's a little overwhelming. Anybody has looked at vehicles? There's vehicles that you can afford and vehicles that you want, (laughs) you know? And the problem is those people are good at convincing you to get the ones you want. And uh, they don't even talk about how much it is. They just talk about what they can get your payment to, right? (laughs) Uh, That's their starting line. What do you want your payment to be? I'm like, no, I want to know how much it costs. (laughs) I might be making that payment the rest of my life. I know how y'all are. So anyways, I was looking at... Uh, some vehicles this week, and one thing that never gets old, to me anyways, it may to some of you, some of you may not even like it. I actually know people that say they don't enjoy the smell of new cars. I don't know what's wrong with those people. If that's you today, I still love you, but that's really weird, okay, (laughs) that you don't like the smell of new cars. I don't know how long my mom's had her car, but I actually drove her car when we went to Montana and it still has a new car smell. Probably doesn't now that we drove it to Montana, me and two, me and two teenage boys. But before that event, it still had a new car smell. And for the first half of the trip, it still had it. And then it turned to feet smell. So anyways, and Cheetos and beef jerky smell. But I love the smell of new cars. So while I was looking at that, those cars this week, I was reminded one of my favorite uh, ministry experiences ever is the first Wednesday night that I was at New Hope Church as their youth pastor, and I decided I was going to go super big, and I, I prepared a sermon, and I had an idea and I had a connection. One of the students had a, uh, their dad worked at a dealership there in uh, Kodak. And so we got this, uh, I don't want to say it wrong, canary yellow. Is that the color? I was like probably going to say the complete wrong bird and the wrong whatever. Is it canary yellow? Is that is that it? So it was a canary yellow, I don't know, uh, Pontiac Sunfire, but it was a convertible. Dude, it was super hot car. And uh, we had to take the rearview mirrors off of it, and we got it in the building. It was so cool. So it was sitting up in the front and just ministered to those kids with that car sitting up there. They all got in it, took pictures, and it had that smell. And so I talked about um, having that new car smell in your life, Right? We should have that new car smell. I mean, everywhere we go, people should smell us and see that we're a new creation. 
It should be fresh and refreshing to those that are around us. It should not be stale and musty and stagnant, you know, and nasty. Our lives should smell good. And so as I was looking at cars this week, I was just reminded of that and just Lord began to speak to me. And so I just want to share a little bit with you today. So we're at Romans 6, verse 1. Romans 5, by the way, is an amazing chapter in Scripture. It talks about how Jesus uh, became our righteousness, and Jesus fulfilled the law, and Jesus made us holy and blameless before the Father. It's an incredible chapter. So here we come to Romans chapter 6 after he's told us how what Jesus has done and how he's made us clean, right? I was thinking today as I drove here uh, looking at this snow, you know, Scripture says that we're, he washes us white as snow. You know, he takes away all the sin and cleanses us and purifies us. Actually, I don't think Scripture says that. I think people just say that. I don't know why I just said that. But anyways, and I was looking at just fields and fields of snow and just thinking about how, how clean and fresh and how bright our life should be. It's beautiful, isn't it? And so that's how we should be. But we go right into Romans chapter 6, and he says, so what do we do then? Okay, so Jesus has made us blameless and perfect, right, and righteous. So what do we do then? Do we persist in sin so that God, God's kindness and grace will increase? Since he's made us perfect, we just, should we just keep sinning and just see how much how much he can handle, how much he can keep washing away, you know, how much his blood covers. Should we just take it for granted? What a terrible thought. We have died to sin once and for all as dead man passes as a dead man passes away from this life. So how could we live under sin's rule a moment longer? Or have you forgotten that all of us who were immersed into union with Jesus, the anointed one, were immersed into union with his death. Sharing in his death by our baptism means that we were co-buried and entombed with him so that with, when the Father's glory raised Christ from the dead, we were also raised with him. We have been co-resurrected with him so that we could be empowered to walk in the freshness of new life. For since we are permanently grafted into him, to experience a death like this, then we are permanently grafted into him to experience a resurrection like his and the new life that it imparts. Could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power? For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we would not continue to live one moment longer submitted to sin's power. Obviously, a dead person is incapable of sinning, all right? What I love, I love all of this passage, but just something that really stands out to me is verse uh, uh, verse 5. We are permanently grafted into him to experience a resurrection like his and the new life that it imparts and the new life that it imparts, okay? 
It's twofold. I've said for a long time that you see signs that say, if you die tonight, where will you spend eternity? Who's seen something like that? If you die today, if you die today, where will you spend eternity? I one of these days I want to put billboards up everywhere and say, if you wake up tomorrow, where will you live tomorrow? Because it's not just about the resurrection, it's about the new life as well. Okay? And so I don't want to just ask people where, if they die, they spend eternity. I want to ask people, where are you living right now? If you don't die tonight, where are you going to be tomorrow when you wake up? Are you going to wake up tomorrow in the same place that you went to bed tonight, in the same life that you're in tonight? I think if we would preach that to people more than about when they die, because people can't comprehend death. People can't comprehend eternity. People can comprehend where they're at in this moment, and he came to give us life and life more abundantly right now in the here and now. I am... I am convinced that I will taste the goodness of God in the land of the living. People need to know that there is a life that is different than the life that they're living right now. And we need to know that. And we need to understand that. I think that sometimes we come into church. I know believers I've witnessed many times over through growing up in church and being in ministry for all my life is people can be saved. They can have their ticket punched to heaven and still live in hell. There's people that say, I'm saved. You know, I have a relationship with Jesus and I believe that. Listen, we're not getting in this today, but you don't lose your salvation like you lose your car keys. Okay. Yeah. You don't, just, you don't just slip and fall and salvation falls out of your pocket. Shoot, I lost my salvation, right? We used to think that. I used to have to go to the altar and get saved every week, right? But we don't lose our salvation like we lose our car keys. And so I believe people can be saved and people can still be tormented. Because his mercies are new every day. He's not done with us yet. He wants to perfect us and bring us into holiness, complete and lacking nothingness, okay? Now, this passage talks about sinning, right? But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, as for us, we have all of these great witnesses who encircle us like clouds, so we must let go of every wound that has pierced us and the sin which we so easily fall into. Another translation says we have to uh, put off every encumbrance, okay, and the things that entangle us and the sin that we fall into, okay? Remember that. Hold that in your mind for just a minute. Um, then we will be able, everybody say then. Then we'll be able to run life's marathon race with passion and determination for the path has already been marked out before us. So look at this progression here. I saw this this week. Some of y'all probably have seen it your entire life, and I'm just catching up, okay? But sometimes it just happens that way. But this passage just really leapt out to me this week that the progression, okay, be really great 
time for an object lesson, but I don't have what I need with me. But encumbrance, and then if you look at the passion, what does it talk about when it says the encumbrance? It says wounds where we've been pierced. So our wounds are like encumbrance, you know, entanglements. So if you think about it, your wounds entangle you. It says it's time to take off the wounds and the entanglement and the sin that we easily fall into. I believe we easily fall into it because we're entangled. Okay? One begets the other. We get entangled with wounds. We get entangled with some parts of brokenness in our life, and that's what causes us to fall into sin. But the opposite of that, what we can do is if we take off the entanglement, we don't fall in sin. But then we can run the race that's been laid out and marked before us. So all of this starts with not being entangled with the wounds that we have, not being entangled with past hurts and situations that cause us to sin. I'm sure all of us, let me get a drink real quick. Everybody turn in your Bibles while I get a drink. I didn't tell you anything, just flip through it. (laughs) Scroll through your Bible app, don't click Facebook. I lose y'all the rest of the time. But it all begins with being free from entanglement. I think all of us can reflect on places of sin, places of of times in our life when our choices and our decisions brought separation between us and God. And you can think about those things, and it's the grace of God, the mercy of God that he can begin to unravel those things for you and hopefully you can see some of those places and see man I really see now why I invited that in why I made those choices why I walked in that you can really see you know places of control strongholds that had been established in your life through places of brokenness that caused you to be susceptible to sin, right? And so what I love is you get to the very end of this, the last passage, verse 7 says, obviously a dead person is incapable of sinning. That's true, right? But I believe it's because the dead person is incapable of hurting. So you know, you remember a few weeks ago, we said we talked about the race. Oh, I can't even remember now. The race to rest in peace, right? The race to die to our flesh. But if we get to a place where we're made whole in him and we let him heal us and restore us, right, in our spirit, but we die to our flesh, then it causes the doors that have been wide open for sin. It causes our predisposed position, our susceptibility to make wrong choices and walk in paths that take us away from fellowship with God, it causes us to not to close those doors and to and to 
almost inoculate us from the susceptibility, is that the word, of uh, that predisposed position, okay? And so we die with him and we're raised with him and we walk in newness of life, but we've died to things to be able to walk in newness of life. If not, we're still bound. And I think people try to die and walk in newness of life and retain some of their former existence. And so just go with me, if you will, to this process of cars, okay? Why in the world would somebody not want a new car? Immediately, I think of Randy. Where's Randy? Randy and his, uh, his family affectionately calls his old Oldsmobile the Hoopty. Isn't that what y'all call it? The Hoopty? They call it the Hoopty. Randy loves the Hoopty, right? I mean, he would drive the Hoopty every single day. If he could, but it's just not dependable. You still have the hoopty? Yeah. And so it comes to the point when it's just not reliable and it just doesn't get you where you need to go, just like the old way of life doesn't get you where you need to go. But you still are in love with it. We still have affection for it. We still, if we possibly thought there was a trip that it would get us to, we would choose to drive it. And then it would take us not where we wanted to go, possibly. Old cars are comfortable. You've got them just the way you want them, right? You can do whatever you need to in them. You got already got a stain. I remember when I got my truck, I bought it new uh, 15, 2006, 15 years ago now. Um, and I didn't have that truck a week. Elias was a baby. I don't know how, but Elias got into his mom's makeup and got her eyeliner. And it had tan cloth seats. And he just rode on that brand new truck. And he's getting that truck now. I don't want to hear any complaints about how dirty it is. Because I would have kept it clean if it wasn't already ruined. By that eyeliner, how appropriate. Um, but it gets, it gets comfortable. It gets comfortable. I, for sake of time, my time, not your time. I don't want to take the time. Y'all already told me y'all have plenty of time for whatever I want to say, right? Exodus chapter 8, you see the story of um, the frogs, the plague of the frogs that were on Egypt. And... Um, uh, Joe Sneed, is that his name? Joe Sneed. Anybody ever heard of Joe Sneed in here? Joe Sneed is an old fireball evangelist. I guess he's still preaching. I don't know if he's still preaching or not. One thing I, Joe Sneed, man, that's, that, yeah, anyway. Joe Sneed would always, he'd carry his own uh, cordless microphone with him just in case you didn't have one. Because he had a mannerism when he preached, preached that, <laughs> He had to have his cordless microphone, and he would have a handkerchief, and Joe Sneed would change that microphone, that handkerchief, like a music, music, golly. <laughs> Either one works, musician, magician, okay? But just the whole time he preached, he would take that hanky and that microphone, you know, and just do the thing the whole time. That's what I remember of Joe Sneed. 
Just had to show you that. It's so important to the sermon today. <laughs> it's important to me. All right. So, but he preached a sermon one time, one more night with the frogs. Yeah, you might have heard that if y'all know Joe Sneed. Uh, he preached that sermon a lot. But when Moses was speaking with Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 8, and Pharaoh asked for the frogs to be gone, you know, like he did with all of the plagues, and then changed his mind, hardened his heart after there was a little reprieve, you know, like, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll never do it again, right? And then you forget about how desperate you were in that moment, and then you find yourself in the exact same place again. But, so Moses asked Pharaoh, I mean, they're like, eat, there's frogs everywhere. It says there were frogs in their ovens, frogs in their ingredients, in their refrigerators, in their cupboards, in their beds, in their showers, in their toilets, everywhere there were frogs. Like Sam I am. You, they were everywhere. And he asked, he asked Pharaoh when he wanted the frogs to be gone. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. <laughs> Who would ever say tomorrow? Now, if you keep reading... I don't know, I don't remember Joe's sermon, I just remember the title, and if you keep reading though, I got a little hint to maybe why, because you know what happened with the frogs? They stacked up. They just died. They didn't disappear. Frogs don't just disappear. Maybe, maybe Pharaoh knew, you know, because he's preparing for a bunch of dead frogs, right? Because, I mean, none of the other ones just, I mean, locusts didn't just disappear, right? I don't know the order of them. I'm showing my ignorance right now. I have to refresh myself. Was locusts before the frogs? Come on, Bible scholars. Locusts was before the frogs. I think locusts was right up at the beginning. But the locusts, you know, they didn't just disappear. They died, right? And so he's thinking, man, there's going to be positive. Maybe that's what he was thinking. I don't know. We got to get our sanitation department ready, you know, for all the dead frogs, we got, you know, I don't know. Who knows? But whatever reason Pharaoh was reasoning, he decided to keep them for one more day. And I'm just thinking, uh, you know, Romans chapter 6 says, should we just go on sinning? God forbid. Dead men don't sin, right? But dead men don't hurt. So if you can't really separate those two things from each other, then it say, how much longer do you want to remain in a place of brokenness that makes you susceptible to sin? Uh, just maybe next Sunday. Maybe next week. Maybe some other time. I don't know about anybody else, but me, as the pastor, I, God has to keep walking me through places of healing and deliverance and healing and restoration I love a saying, I don't even remember who said it, I think it was Damon Thompson, said, you'll never get where you've never been if you always stop where you always stop. Super true. You'll never get where you've never been if you always stop where you always stop. If you're not living in a life that's life abundantly, super added, overflowing, full of glory, you're never going to get there if you keep stopping when God is trying to heal you 
bring revelation about points of brokenness in your life, and we're just like, one more day, one more day, one more day, one more day. It gets comfortable in our sin because the fear of the discomfort of healing makes us decide I'll choose to drive the hoopty instead of a new car because I don't want to pay for the new car. So it gets comfortable, right? Hebrews in, ele- uh, he- Hebrews in 11, Moses. <laughs> Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 says that he chose to be mistreated with the people of Egypt rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. See, sometimes the mistreatment is the healing. There's there's places of persecution and mistreatment and things not always going our way that we're trying to avoid, but God is going to bring about healing in those seasons and in that time, but we have to decide if we're going to keep avoiding healing and self-preserve and make sure we never have anything that's just uncomfortable in our life. We find ourselves trying to prop up our lives and make our life feel better and make the hoopty put good oil in it or whatever, but it still is just not reliable. And it keeps failing you and it keeps stopping you and it keeps not getting you to where God's trying to take you, but you're using old comfortable situations because the, uh, the unknown is too scary. But you've got to decide whatever it takes for freedom That's what I want to walk in. Whatever it takes for freedom. We have to be a whatever it takes people, no matter how comfortable our life has become. Hey, we're naturally averse to pain. So we find a way to make our lives as comfortable as possible. But it's pseudo comfort. It's pseudo. See, the Holy Spirit, the comforter came, and who's the one that convicts us of sin? The Holy Spirit, the comforter. So see, he didn't come to make you feel better about your life. He came to get you to tap into real life, real comfort, real peace, real joy. He came to expose the pseudo comfort that you're living in, in our places of brokenness that cause us to continue to live a life of sin. Some of y'all are like, man, you're preaching this to the wrong people. We don't sin. Sure you do. <laughs> Old cars become our identity. My first truck, my papa gave me, he retired from some sheet metal company. I don't even remember the name of it. But they gave him this truck when he retired. It was a 1974 custom deluxe Chevy pickup truck. Three on the tree, they say. Is what they call it. And that's how you shifted gears. The floorboard was rusted out. There was a hole in it. I'd chew tobacco and spit in the floor. And it'd go through on the ground. And the, and the fenders over the bed were all rusted out. I mean, this truck was rough. But I, me and my papa rode in that truck all the time. So nobody could ever convince me it wasn't the best thing ever. I loved that truck, Right? I was so redneck, I put big tires. I couldn't afford four big tires, so I bought two big tires. 
So I get a little better traction. It wasn't four-wheel drive, but I like to go four-wheeling. So I put two big old desert dueler tires as big as I could get them on the back. <laughs> Regular tires on the front. Big old tires on the back, right? I was so redneck. I hear people that go to Park West tell me, I had somebody come up to me at a restaurant one time and say, they, I don't know how they knew somebody or heard me. I don't know how they even, but they came up and said, are you Michael Cox? I said, yeah. They're like, well, we go to Park West Church, and we hear stories about you all the time from <laughs> Jeremy McGinnis. And I know they're not good stories. Jeremy had a propensity to get us into altercations, just to watch me handle the altercation. And so anyways, that truck, that truck was nice, and me and Jeremy were driving one day in that truck, and it's so weird. We had our cowboy boots on and our cowboy hats on. We thought we were some country, raised in West Knoxville, <laughs> spoiled out of our minds. Couldn't ride a cow or rope a horse or anything. And we were driving that redneck truck and had our boots and our hats on, buddy. We were something. Now, we'd go, we'd go down to Cotton Eye Joe on the kid night. But what the heck is a kid night at Cotton Eye Joe? Don't let your kids go there on kid night. That's just dumb. All right? They, no, nobody let me go. I just went. This wasn't chaperoned well. <laughs> so, no, I don't, I don't know if Jeremy ever went there or not. Let me make that disclaimer. I don't remember him ever going there, okay? I don't. I really don't, so I can't put that on him. Me and some of my other redneck friends would do that. But we were driving down the road with cowboy hats on and cowboy boots in my pickup truck with the big tires on the back, rusted out fenders, and it was burnt orange, too. And probably at this point, the whole front end of it was messed up, bumper off of it, just two of those big rails of the frame sticking out in the front, no grill on it. You can see the radiator in it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Y'all would know this person, so I can't say, but I was kissing a girl goodnight one night, and I left that three on the tree in neutral. And I thought I had to break on enough. Next thing I know, I hear this massive crash. And I look out, my truck's not even sitting there, but I don't even understand what happened for a minute. I don't even know it's the truck. I didn't realize the truck was gone. And the truck rode down a hill. There's this cliff before the railroad tracks, and that truck just went off the cliff and parked. Still running. Can your car do that? Got me a tow truck, pulled it out, drove it home. Come on, can your car do that? Yeah. Uh, some of them hoopties, some of them. So I didn't see this red light. I ran a red light in that truck with our two cowboy hats on sitting in there. Got, there was a cop sitting right at the intersection, pulled us over, sat back there till backup came. They all came out of their cars with their guns. This is a felony stop because of these rednecks in this truck that ran the red light. And 
it was a wild experience. That's a long story. But maybe somebody y'all see Jeremy McGinnis somewhere and say, are you Jeremy McGinnis? Dude, we heard the craziest story about you the other day. A little payback. I'm saying that that truck became part of my identity. People knew, knew me as the guy, the redneck that drove that big burnt orange pickup truck with big tires on the back, right? That's part of who I became known as. And so sometimes what's comfortable to live in because we're afraid of what it takes to be free becomes our identity. Some people won't trade the life they're living for the life God wants to give them and have that fresh new smell that everybody can see because it's become part of their identity. We see Jacob, who was a supplanter, who had been deceiving his whole life, and he wrestles with God, and God says, what's your name? And we see for one of the first time in Jacob's life, he says, my name is Jacob. He quit trying to deceive. He quit trying to get a blessing by being deceptive, and he just admitted who he was. He came out of it with a limp, but God changed his name to Israel. See, so many times we can't become who God wants us to become because we're so in love with the identity that we've established in places of brokenness and sin. We don't want to change. We don't want to be different. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Now if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he has become an entirely new creation. All that is related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. If we're in Christ, we should be, all that was had to do with the old nature should be done away with, and we should be fresh and new. Now I'll be the first to tell you, I believe it's a process of continuing to go from glory to glory to glory to glory. I believe when Lamentation says that his mercies are new every day, I love this definition. This is a Pastor Tom Sturban's definition. Mercy is God's refusal to leave us the way that we are. It's his refusal. So you think about that. When you lay your head down at night, prepare yourself. When you wake up the next morning, God's mercy is brand new. That means God has a brand new determination and he's got a brand new um, provision for you because he never has an expectation of you that he doesn't provide for you. You hear me? He never has an expectation of you that he doesn't provide for you. He's not that kind of God. Remember the parable of the mina, the servant that buried his said, I knew that you were a God, a Lord that expected something that you did not deserve. And the Lord said in this parable that Jesus is saying, as you have said, so you'll be judged. He really isn't a God that expects something that he hasn't given or given you every means to do what he's asked you to do. So if his mercy, if his, if his commitment to not leave you where you are is new every day, then there is provision every day for you to walk the path of fresh new life and healing and deliverance. 
going to glory to glory. Matthew chapter 9, um, you can look at that. I'm just going to paraphrase just a couple of people who changed in this. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, you see in the beginning of the chapter, verse 2, some people brought a paraplegic man to him lying on a sleeping mat. Jesus said, my son, be encouraged for your sins have been forgiven. They begin to, the Pharisees got upset that he said, and the scholars said, how can you say he's been forgiven? Jesus said, what's easier, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? He asked that question, and before they could even answer, he just gave them a demonstration. He's like, what would be easier, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? By the way, while they're thinking, rise up and walk. Give them a little object lesson of what, what I'm talking about here. What's easier, guys? Friends of gear walk, what? Rise up and walk. I can do that. You think I can do that? Right? And so he rises up and walks. An example of somebody whose identity had become the guy on the mat. But after his encounter with Jesus, he was a different person. He was no longer the guy who was on the mat. Verse 9, you see where Jesus calls Matthew to be a disciple. Matthew was a tax collector. And it says in Scripture that he was uh, a traitorous Jew that was busy at his work collecting taxes for the Romans. Jesus said to him, come follow me. Immediately, Matthew jumped up and began to follow Jesus. I believe immediately he was changed. When he followed Jesus, tax collector, that's who he was. That's all I knew. But he had to leave that life. You keep reading in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is on his way to a little girl who died, but on his way, a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years touched him of his garment. You have an issue of blood for 12 years. That becomes part of who you are. For a season of my life, carrying around... A bottle of chloroseptic spray became part of who I was. People knew me by the guy that carried the throat spray around with him because he had ulcers in his mouth and throat. I'm not sad a bit that that's not my identity anymore. Right. <laughs> I'm not sad a bit. So after 12 years, she touches the hem of his garment. She's made whole. Immediately, she's made whole. He says, your faith has made you whole. He keeps going on to the little girl's house. They said, she's dead. This is a dead girl. Jesus said, she's just sleeping. Tells her to wake up softly. She wakes up just like you'd wake your kid up in the morning. And he says, get her some Cheerios. She's hungry. She was a little dead girl. Not anymore. Her identity changed. When he's leaving her, two blind men following him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Please refuse to leave us the way that we are. Jesus said, do, do, you, have, do you believe that I have the power to restore your sight? Yes, we believe. Instantly, their eyes were open. They could see. Keep on going. Verse 32, Jesus, brought, they brought before Jesus a man with a demon spirit who couldn't speak. Jesus cast the demon out of him, and immediately the man began to speak plainly. Probably my favorite story 
One of my favorite stories in Scripture is Mark chapter 5. One of, probably my favorite conversion in Scripture. Let's say that. Mark chapter 5, there's a man who lived in the graveyard. He was possessed with demons, and they tried to chain this man up, and he, they never could chain him up. He'd just break the chains. I mean, he was out there. When Jesus asked the demons to name themselves, they said, Mob. Another translation says legion because we are many. Couldn't even number how many were in this man. And so he was around in the tombs. They had many times tried to chain him up. And in verse 15, it says, when they found Jesus, they saw the demonized man sitting there. By the way, he was naked too. I forgot to tell you that part. He wouldn't wear clothes. Properly clothed and in his right mind. Love that. It says, when they found Jesus, he was sitting there. His proximity to Jesus had a lot to do with his ability to sit there in his right mind. We've got to be close to Jesus. We've got to be in proximity with him. But all of these people had an identity based on their brokenness. You know that everybody knew them by their brokenness. What about the man by the pool of Bethesda? He had been lame for 38 years. You don't think people knew him by that? What is your life outside of that? I'm reminded of the, um, oh man, who was the beggar that changed his garment? Bartimaeus took off his beggar's garment this garment gave you a license to beg. It was like what identified you as a beggar. So many times we can't be healed because we refuse to take off what identifies us because it, what identifies us gives us special privileges. It gets us something from people. It gets us sympathy. But sympathy is a cheap knockoff of of appreciation, acceptance, love, camaraderie, what you could get by not trying to get it by manipulation. As long as you can get something by manipulation, you'll never truly be free because you'll never know if they weren't being manipulated, would they even speak to me? Would they even care for me? So it makes you paranoid constantly that one day you're not going to be able to manipulate them enough to continue the relationship that satisfies you. That's what happens when we use our identity of brokenness to try to self-preserve in this world. We'll always be wondering, when is the gig going to be up? When Jesus is standing there saying, I want to heal you, I want to restore you, I want to bring, I want to change your life, uh, maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Because I'm scared of what it takes to be healed and because I'm not healed, I'm just going to continue to sin. If we get emotionally attached, I just want to end with a few things today. Matthew chapter 9, back in Matthew chapter 9, in the middle of that passage, verse 16, and who would mend worn out clothing with new fabric? When the new cloth shrinks, it will rip making the whole worse than before. 
And who would pour fresh new wine into an old wineskin? Eventually the wine will ferment and make the wineskin burst, losing everything. The wine is spilled and the wineskin ruined. Instead, new wine is always poured into a new wineskin so that both are preserved. We're trying to so many times get just enough of God, of religion, to patch up our life. God has never been interested in patching up your life. Because if he just patches up with your life and he tries to pour into you what he wants to pour into you, the new life he wants to give you, that old life can't contain it, no matter how many patches of good stuff you've put on it. I see it as little Boy Scout, Girl Scout, Brownie Troop, whatever all those things are. Ludicrous. Can I get on a box just for just one second? I just saw the other day that there's a Boy Scout troop. You know, they now that girls can be Boy Scouts and girls can be uh, girls can be Boy Scouts and girls can be girls boys can be Girl Scouts. It's hard to do that. It's hard to make your tongue say a boy, girl, scout, girl, boy, scout. So I saw the other day, check this out. There's a boy scout troop that's all girls, and you have to be a girl to be in it. I'm not kidding. That's the, that, that is a beautiful picture of the tolerance right there. We don't care anything about tolerance. We just want to take something over, right? So there is a Boy Scout troop. It's all girls. It makes sense of that. Couldn't we have just stayed Girl Scouts? We were going to exclude boys, right? But the boys couldn't exclude the girls from being boys. I don't know. But we want to take those patches, those little memory verse patches, those little... Sunday church patches, those little, all the things that we want to do to add to our broken life, and we think somehow it's going to make us able to contain it. But those patches, when new wine tries to be poured into your life, will just tear. Because your old life was never created to contain what God wants to put in you. You have to be born again, right? And not only born again, I believe he continually prepares us. And I mean, so we're new, right? Right. But new gets old. So new wineskin has to continuously be uh, conditioned with new wine. So God, I believe in his mercy, refusal to leave us where we are. Okay, I'm saved. Okay, take this outside like that old baseball glove I bought and I'm going to put oil all over it and it's going to feel a little inconvenient but what we're going to do is is beat this with a baseball bat for a little while till it gets soft. Now I don't believe God beats us with a baseball bat but I do believe he allows us to go through things that are uncomfortable so that it will condition us to be able to contain what he wants to put into our life because he sees the bigger picture. And he sees your heart saying, I want 
life to the fullest. I want all that you have for me. I want to be all that you created me to be. And he says, okay, I got you. We're going to have to walk through this because this is going to expose some things in you that we got to take care of, that we got to condition. We become a new wineskin with bad patches instead of an old wineskin with good patches. He just has to fix some of those little things. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Isaiah 43, stop dwelling on the past. Don't even remember these former things. I'm doing something brand new, something unheard of. Even now it sprouts and it grows and it matures. Don't you perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and open up flowing streams in the desert. Matthew 16, 24, Mark 8, Luke 9, all those say the same thing. If anyone wants to come after me, he has to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because dead men don't hurt and dead men don't sin. Right? And that's the healing. I want to be unoffendable. Don't you want to be unoffendable? I walked through some stuff this week, and I was like, I want to be unoffendable. And I can honestly say stuff that in my life in the past would have derailed me and frustrated me now is just, man, that stinks. Right? But I can't wait till I don't even say, man, that stinks. I don't even want to process it. I just want to be like, man, they're beautiful. Man, they're so awesome. Man, I don't I can't even I don't even have eyes to see the things that they've done that let me down. Or or have have the power to discourage me. They're just beautiful. They're just amazing. I believe we can have those eyes. I believe we can see as he sees. I believe on our way to the cross we can be focused on the joy set before us. We can see people redeemed and whole and set free, and we can see them not in their current state. That sometimes frustrates us and lets us down. I want to see people whole, complete, and lacking nothing, and I want to treat them that way. I want to call that out in them, don't you? But to do that, we've got to be whole ourselves. We've got to be willing to say whatever it takes. We've got to be willing to walk the path that he's marked out for us. Let's no longer be entangled with the wounds that have pierced us so that we won't fall into sin. And let's run the race that he's marched, marked out for us. And it begins with his mercy that refuses to leave us the way that we are. We have to be a people. We have to be a people. We have to be a people. In the last days, many will be offended and turn away. The only people that are going to survive in the last days are people who are whole, complete, and lacking nothing without gaping wounds of susceptibility for the infection of offense. You know, I can't help but think about you know, this whole COVID situation, they say you're an at-risk population if you have 
what, what's the word? Comorbidities. Comorbidities, co, you know, things that can partner with the disease that are already causing you to be compromised in your health. And I believe we are in, there's a time coming and we're even now in where the people of God, if they're going to withstand all of the vast opportunities to be offended, it's going to have to be people who have allowed God to give them a new wineskin, to condition them, to heal them, to restore them. It's going to have to be a people. It's like, you know, it's like preemptive strike to prepare ourselves. You know, there's many of us, we, 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 it's too late when the offense comes to go back and prepare yourself for the offense, right? You've got a new wound and you're trying to get it healed. A lot of times we heal the new wound and we never go deeper to see why we were susceptible to it to start with. And so I think it's time. I know it's time and it's so important. Romans 6, so what do we do then? Man, I believe God is good. I know God is good. And there's no mountain that he won't climb. There's no wall he won't kick down. There's no shadow he won't light up. He is so passionate for you. He's never going to quit. He's never going to give up. He's never going to stop. His mercy is his refusal to leave you where you are. God is good. But what do we say to that? Shall we continue to live a life less than what he was good enough? He was good enough to secure. I love the saying, I want to lay hold of what I was laid hold of for. Jesus laid hold of us. He ransomed us. He purchased us. He secured us. And he loves us. But what do we do? Just continue? I believe the joy that was set before him is not only eternity with him in heaven, but it is a life abundant that we live here. We literally rob God. We rob his son of what he gave his life for when we continue to walk in a life that is less than what he secured for us. The ultimate prize is to go home. I couldn't help but to think today of Barry when we were singing that song. I've never sang of it in that context before, but I just thought when it's time for him to give us the ultimate reward. I talked last week about the hair trigger. I believe... I believe it's all God could do to let us stay here a moment longer. But he loves the world, and so he leaves us here. He loves our family, and so sometimes he's using us in our family to bring them to a certain place. I believe we have an assignment on our life, and he is waiting for the moment when that assignment is complete. And when that moment comes, there's no mountain he won't climb. There's no wall he won't kick down. 
nothing that could stop him from coming and getting us and taking us home. Nothing, nothing. But until then, we have an opportunity on this side of glory to not only live a life. You know, it's like I always say, pick me, pick me. Some people make this life look like such a life of a martyr that nobody wants to live it. But a life totally surrendered to God. I mean, you think about uh, what's the guy I've talked about often. He says, um, let's do this for our family. Let's play the man. What are the two men that were burned at the stake? I can't remember their names. Ridley, Master Ridley was one of them. I don't remember the other. But I just want you to think about the Constitution. Sometimes the Constitution of a man that while being burned at the stake will still worship God. Now, we think of that a lot of times like, man, what a, what a martyr. What a committed, strong person. But I think of it as, man, what, what has God done in them? What type of revelation are they having of the Father? What type of fullness of life have they lived in that causes them to think that this is nothing? There is nothing that he is asking of you that does not get something to you. He created us to live in fellowship with him and he sent his son to seek and save that which was lost. We were never little robots that were put on earth to do his services. It was all about love. It was all about intimacy. It was all about relationship. And it was all about his love. He says, you know, what, what's, our, what's our assignment once we die? Our assignment is to be seated with him in heavenly places. Actually, it's not die. We, we, we enter that life now. But for him to lavish on us the riches from now to eternity. At some point, we transition into heaven and receive that, but it's available to us here. John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here and it's close. I had the thought the other day, was having a conversation and never had this thought before, but if, if, if repenting was about avoiding hell, wouldn't he have said repent because the kingdom of hell is at hand? And you need to avoid it. But he didn't say that. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's available to you. So repent. Repent of our sin. Repent. Let times of healing come. And let's be restored. Can you guys stand with me and we're going to go today? Don't forget immediately after service, if you're interested at all in going to Guatemala, please come to the fellowship hall and I'm going to share briefly with you and we're going to eat good food. Lord, I am so hungry for healing in my life. I'm so hungry for healing in my life, God. I want to see things the way you see things.
I want to respond to people the way you would respond to people. I want my testimony to be the testimony of Jesus that if I say it, it's because he said it. If I do it, it's because he did it. The way that I act exemplifies my father. And I know that the only way that can happen is to be like Jesus in that the God of this world has nothing in me. So, Lord, I want to be so untangled from wounds and so untangled from places of brokenness that cause me to lash out, that cause me to act out, that cause me to try to self-medicate and self-preserve and somehow find a place of comfort in my brokenness. I no longer want to manage the pain. I no longer want to compensate for the brokenness by extreme behaviors and pleasurable things that attempts at finding things that are pleasurable for a season. God, I know that the only way, it's not to get more willpower. It's not to, it's not to be uh, more afraid of you. It's not to It's not to be concerned that I'm going to go to hell. It's not any of those things, God. The only way that I can turn from sin is to let you heal the brokenness in me that causes me to turn to other things. God, I want to be whole, complete, and lacking nothing. So, God, I say whatever it takes in my life to bring healing, So be it in Jesus' name. That's real simple today. If you'll just make that your prayer, would you? I mean, like a binding covenant. I don't have time to go into it, but Abraham made a binding covenant with God. And on the other hand of our, on the other side of our extended hand, I can just see God with his extended hand. And will you just extend your hand today in oath and covenant and say, I want to be healed, I want to be whole. Whatever it takes, God, bring wholeness to my life. In Jesus' name, so be it, so be it. Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Redemption Life Church. Be sure to stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Redemption Life. 